We firmly believe in the importance of the Bible, right? Yeah. And yet, when you ask some Christians about their engagement in the Word, there is at times an uncomfortable silence. We know the Bible is important in our faith, yet there are many Christians who struggle to consistently engage in the Word in a way that is meaningful and that impacts their life. We read lots of Christian books, lots of Christian magazines where people talk about the Word of God, but my question to you this morning is, do we spend time alone in God's Word being personally impacted by it? And so what fires me up, and we're in this series here, what fires me up is this thing. And I want to help us understand this morning what it really means to allow the Word of God to transform our lives. I want to talk about how we can personally engage in the Bible in such a way that we can experience real transformation in our lives. You know, it's actually not really as complicated as we sometimes think it is. You don't need a seminary degree, Bible college degree. You don't need decades of church attendance in order to encounter God in His Word. Every one of us here can experience this, as we're going to see this morning. And so if you have your Bible, and if you don't have one, raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you one. Please turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. This psalm is a great psalm. And when it comes to the topic of how to engage the Bible in a real, dynamic way, Psalm 1 is a critical passage to look at. And so why don't we begin by reading this out loud together. The words will be on the screen, and so let's read Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This psalm, it's a wonderful psalm, describes for us a very vivid contrast. On one hand, there is a person whose life is like chaff, dried wheat husks that get blown here and there. There's no stability, no substance, there is no life. In that chaff. But on the other hand, the psalmist talks about this person who's like this tree that is planted by, by streams of water. And those trees, they're, they're bearing fruit and never having leaves, never having leaves that wither. It's a picture of stability and fullness and blessing. Fruit. Never having leaves that wither. Fruit and blessing. Now, what makes the difference between these two radically different individuals that the psalmist is describing for us? It's one thing. It's one thing that that defines the difference between these two types of people. 
It is the person's engagement and approach with the Word of God. That's the difference between these two types of people. That's what makes the difference. That's how significant this is. It's not, oh, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible more sort of thing. This is a dramatic picture of the difference that God's Word can make in a person's life. So how does this kind of engagement happen? How can it happen? How can we be transformed by the Word of God? That's the question we want to deal with this morning. How can we be transformed by the Word of God? Notice verse 2. How? But his delight, it says, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, the Scripture says, he meditates day and night. Now, once we truly understand what it means to delight in and meditate on God's Word, we will then discover from this psalm what God's Word will do for us as we walk through life, as we live life on this earth. The first word or thing to describe this person's relationship with God's Word from verse 2 is delight. And it's no surprise that the psalmist starts here. As he talks about our engagement with the Word of God. As he talks about delighting in His Word. This here is where Scripture always starts. With any issue. It's a heart issue. Delight is a part issue. It's a, it's a part of who we are. That's what is most critically important here. If I were to stand up here and I were to give you some motivational talk about why you should read the Bible more. You know, I make some of you feel guilty enough to do that for a while. Maybe even a few days. Maybe even a few weeks. But guilt makes a lousy, long-term motivator. Right? It does. It works in short bursts. But it eventually loses its steam. The psalmist doesn't say his obligation is to the law of the Lord. No, he says his delight is in the law of the Lord. It says his delight is in the law of the Lord. There is a joy in this person's engagement with the Word. There is a love for this Bible. There is a deep heart desire for God's Word. That's what the psalmist is talking about. And this is so important. This is so foundational. If our hearts are not in love with the Word, any consistent life-changing engagement in the Word won't happen. It won't. We may make all sorts of commitments and promises, New Year's resolutions, to be more consistent in reading the Bible, but it won't make a long-term impact unless our heart orientation towards the Bible is changed. So how does that happen? How do we have a heart change? How do we change our heart's orientation towards the Word if we're not delighting in the Word, as the psalmist says? Well, I think the first step is understanding, or as I would say, exposing some of what we would call unhealthy ways that our hearts tend to be oriented towards the Bible. You know, all of us have a particular heart orientation towards the Bible, We have a particular grid, if you want to call it that, through which we view and engage the Bible. And and sometimes we may think our approach is okay when it is actually counterproductive. And so let me just take a few minutes here on the front side and, and share with you what I think are at least four unhealthy ways of approaching or viewing the Bible. Because if we can get rid of the unhealthy stuff, then we can begin to engage the Bible in a healthy way. So first, 
the first unhealthy approach that we sometimes take to the Bible is to view the Bible like a newspaper. Okay? Like a newspaper. You say, Kent, what do you mean by that? Well, we're reading it primarily for information or facts. Primarily for information, for facts. You know, what happened here? Who did what? How did the school board decide what homes are for sale? What jobs are available? We're reading it for facts. A lot of people read the Bible in this way. I at times read the Bible in that way as well. You know, some interesting stories to read, some facts to learn, a way to increase our knowledge on a subject in Scripture. But it's all about gathering information. And in this approach, the heart is generally not engaged. And the same thing when reading the Bible this way. Our heart is generally not engaged when we're simply reading it for information, to gather facts, to gather bits, tidbits of interesting stories and insights. Because we just want to be informed. We want to have a knowledge of the Bible. Now, this approach to the Scriptures, and you may know some people like this, that know a lot about the Bible... And they're some of the biggest jerks. You ever meet some of them? At one point in my life, I was one of those jerks. Okay? You know, they know the Bible, and they want you to know that they know the Bible. Right? They're quoting verses. They're telling you all sorts of biblical stories and all of that. They're just spewing information left and right. It's all about information. All about information. People who know the Bible, and they want you to know it. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Mere biblical knowledge can give us a false sense of spiritual maturity. It really can. But if it's not producing love, love for God and love for others, If it's not producing a deeper love for God and people, it's simply information. When I graduated from seminary, I had lots of information. I was one of those jerks. Not a lot of heart transformation, but a lot of information. Man, I knew everything about the Bible that I thought I could know. I knew the flow and the sequence of all 66 books. I knew basically the content of those 66 books. I knew the authors of that. I knew all the Greek. I knew all the Hebrew. I knew all of the different theological positions you could take on different theological issues. And I let people know that I knew that. And early on in my ministry, then I had a very godly person come alongside of me and put their arm around me and said, Kent, you know a lot. That's great. But do you care about people? Is that knowledge you have, is that driving you to to know God better and more? Is that knowledge that you have about Scripture, is that driving you to a greater love for, for others? I mean, that was a real slap in the face at that point in time because I was driven by this sense of I knew it. And I knew I knew it. I knew it in my head, but it hadn't translated down into my heart. Information. When you're reading the Bible simply for information, that can be an unhealthy approach. Well, a second unhealthy approach to the Bible is to view it as a rule book. Viewing it as a rule book. To view the Bible as simply a book telling us what to do or not to do. Now, the Bible certainly has commands in it, and it does tell us right and wrong. Absolutely. 
But when we approach the Bible primarily as a book of rules, it inevitably leads us down one of two paths. One path is a path of self-righteousness. You see, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' culture were viewed as the spiritual studs of the day. They knew it. They knew God's word backwards, forwards. They knew the rules. And for them, it was all about the do's and the don'ts. And they were sincere about following the do's and the don'ts. They were sincere about trying to follow God's rules. But what happened is that it filled them with spiritual pride. It says they went around and although they didn't say it, but their life was such where it was like, look at how well I'm following the rules. Man, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. I'm following this rule and I'm following that rule. And I'm not breaking any of them. But it also filled them not only with self-righteousness, but unfortunately it filled them with a degree of disdain. Disdain for those that weren't following the rules. Are you with me? You know, it filled them with disdain for those that weren't following the rules nearly as well as they were. They were filled with self-righteousness, with hypocrisy, and a judgmental attitude. And, and listen very carefully. Don't miss this. Their engagement in the Word of God actually fueled these things of self-pride, of arrogance. And they didn't see it. That's one path when the Bible is viewed simply as a rule book. The other path is not self-righteousness. But it's self-loathing, a sense of failure, when all you do is you see the Bible as a, as a book of do's and don'ts. It not only leads to self-righteousness, but it can lead to self-loathing, failure, right? I mean, if every time we read the Word and we're confronted with more things that we're not doing, that we're supposed to be doing, we experience this deepening sense of failure and guilt, you know, occasionally I get an advertisement in the mail about a, a book or a, or a DVD that is titled something like 25 Ways to Be the Best Pastor. Well, when I get something like that, I typically will throw it in the trash. Now, yeah, there's some things I need to continue to work on to be a good pastor, to be a good shepherd. But the last thing that I want to do is read a book or watch a DVD giving me this huge list of things that I'm not doing right as a pastor. Okay? I think we know what that's like. As a parent, if if the only time our kids hear of the things that they're not doing right, it leads them down this path of, of failure and frustration and guilt. So if we view the Bible as a simply as a rule book showing us all the things that we should be doing and things that we aren't doing, how motivated are we to engage in the Word? I mean, who wants to do a list that is this big? Anybody here want to do a list of things that's this big? Uh Uh-uh. I don't. We won't be delighting in God's Word if we simply approach the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts. We won't be delighting in the Word if we're approaching it simply as good information. Well, the third unhealthy way to approach the Bible is to view it primarily as a self-help guide. The third way. Self-help guide. As we look at the Bible, 
It's a book to help us feel better about ourselves. I mean, there are a number of TV preachers out there that quote Scripture, but after listening to them for a while or reading their books with some of them, you begin to realize that they're just picking and choosing a few favorite verses here and there, and they're using the same verses over and over again, and every verse they use has to do with you. With you. How can you make your life work better? How can you be a better person? How can you achieve your dreams? How can you feel better about yourself? Now, the Bible does talk about how we should view ourselves and the things that we can do to walk in wisdom. But the problem is, when this becomes the grid through which we approach Scripture, what it does is it ends up being all about us, right? It's all about our fears. It's all about our insecurities, our dreams, our desires, and we only love the Word as long as it feeds our own narcissism, as long as it makes us feel good. In other words, our love for the Bible is really only feeding a love for ourselves. It's self-centeredness, right? Well, the fourth unhealthy way to approach the Bible is to view it primarily as a catalog of blessings and promises to claim. So whenever we read the Bible and we read it through this particular grid, what we're doing is we're looking for and focusing on promises that we claim as our own. Now again, hear me. The Bible is full of wonderful promises and blessings which we can enjoy, which we can experience. But when that is our primary focus, the primary focus, the Bible simply becomes this catalog with all of these wonderful things that God wants us to have. And if we don't have them, then all we need to do is just claim them. You know what I'm talking about? A, a, a little side note here, okay? Many of us, including me, listen to various Bible teachers on the radio, internet, on our iPods. I would just encourage you to be discerning as you listen and ask yourself this of those radio preachers. Is this person teaching the whole counsel of God? Do they talk about suffering as well as healing? Do they talk about persecution as well as prosperity? Do they talk about sin as well as being successful? Do they talk about repentance as often as they they talk about happiness? You know, let me be clear. In every one of these unhealthy approaches that I just mentioned, there is some element of truth. I mean, the Bible gives us knowledge. Sure it does. It gives us rules. It can help us feel better about ourselves. And it can offer us promises to embrace. All of that is true. The problem, however, is when that is our primary focus when we approach the Word. When our ultimate reason for reading the Bible is to find this one thing that's not good. Because we end up turning the Bible into something we are using for our own self-centered gain. Okay? In almost every one of these approaches that I mentioned to you, they have one thing in common. You know what it is? 
We're still in control. We are still in control after reading the Bible. If we use one of those unhealthy means as our primary reason for reading Scripture. We're reading the Bible, trying to get things that enable us to get what we want. Right? And what inevitably happens is that we only then interact with certain portions of Scripture. We only focus on certain verses or certain portions of the Bible. And we ignore those portions that that don't feel as comfortable or that don't fit our narrow focus. And what happens is that it it short-circuits our spiritual growth. What it does is it stunts our spiritual growth. As much as I appreciate John 3.16, and as incredible as that verse is with the amount of truth that's in there, I've known some Christians who that is the only verse that they know and live by. I'm going, it's great, but to focus simply on that will stunt one's spiritual growth. And you see, at times we find ourselves using the Bible to get what we want. And all of these things are ultimately heart issues. They're heart issues. What is our heart orientation towards the Bible? Is it primarily getting what we want? Or is it about something else? And really, the something else is what God wants. What does God want? It's not what I want from His Word, but it's what God wants me to understand from His Word. Look at verse 2. But His delight is in the law of the Lord. The psalmist is describing this deep, heartfelt love for God's Word, a longing for it, a joy that is found in it. And so here's the... Here's a critical question. What distinguishes this delight in God's Word? What distinguishes this delight in God's Word? It's this one single word, encounter. Encounter. You see, God's Word, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, that for the Word of God is living, it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and a spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's encounter. The Bible can facilitate an authentic encounter with the God of the Word. That's the purpose of the Word. The Bible is not an end in itself. It is not God. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible helps us facilitate an authentic and deeper encounter with God. God has given us His Word to point us to Him, to direct our souls to Him, to open our hearts to Him. It's all about encountering Him. And this is so important because when we reduce the Word of God to facts, to rules, to blessings to claim, we miss out, we miss out on encountering God. Now you may think, I'm overstating this. You're going, Kent, don't be so fanatical about it. You may think I'm overstating the case here, but I'm not. I'm really not. You know, listen to what Jesus said to the experts in the law in John chapter 5. You might want to write this verse down. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. Jesus said to these religious leaders of the day who were filled with so much knowledge, the ability to know the difference between the do's and the don'ts, Jesus' words to them were this. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness, he says, about me. About me. About me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, they were studying the scriptures. They were memorizing the scriptures. Diligently trying to obey the scriptures. But they missed the point of the scriptures. They missed Jesus. They missed God in the process. The delight is not in the words of the Bible themselves. But the words facilitate an authentic encounter with the God of the Bible. But there are some Christians that say, I don't really have a a love for the word, a love for the Bible. I try to read it, but I don't understand it. I get bored with it. So the question is, how can I delight in God's word? How can I delight in it? And the answer is this. We must move beyond reading the Bible for information, but read it to encounter God. When we realize that the Word of God is one of the key ways that God wants to meet with us and speak into our lives and bring correction, equipping, and intimacy with Him, we suddenly love the light in the Word because we love God. Are you with me? We read this to encounter God. Yeah, there's great facts, lots of to-dos and don'ts, A lot of things that help me understand a little bit more about who I am and why I do the things that I do. But more than that, God is saying, encounter me here in this. That's what the word is about. That's what the word is about. Delighting. Delighting in God's word is at the heart of our engaging in the Bible. Meditation now gets at the how. Meditation gets at the how. So how can we experience a life-changing encounter with God and His Word? Let's start with a definition. Definition of meditation. What is it? Well, for many Christians, the word meditation is a bit intimidating and possibly a bit even weird when we talk about Christian meditation. Perhaps we it, that concept conjures up images of incense and in yoga, or maybe it makes us think of the, the ultra-deep level of spirituality that is reserved for a select few introverts with lots of time on their hands and who live in the mountains of Colorado or some other mountain, okay? You know, the practice of meditation is actually quite normal and very easy. And it's, it's accessible to all of us. I mean, it is a God-given tool to help us more deeply engage in the Bible and to experience God. The word meditate in the Hebrew literally means to ponder, to muse, to think about. It is the activity of mulling something over in our mind in such a way that it speaks to your soul. It is to chew on something, some idea or thought until it begins to influence your way of thinking and believing because it's penetrated to the core of your very being. That's meditation. And we do it all the time. Now, does it sound simple? Well, it is. It is. Because we meditate regularly. All of us. On a regular basis. You know, it's like when we're pondering a significant decision like buying a new car or a used car. 
we mull it over in our minds. We think about the advantages, the disadvantages, the, the payments, the insurance. And, and we just continue to think about that. We're mulling it over in our mind. We're, we're considering it from a variety of different angles. We're thinking about buying a new home. The same thing, you're, you're meditating on this decision. You're thinking about the implications of if you buy it or if you don't buy it. What does it mean? Thinking about a job change. Same thing, you're mulling it over in your mind. You're thinking about it. You're musing over it. You're chewing on it regularly. And, and what we're doing is considering the idea from several different vantage points. There is nothing super spiritual about meditation. Nothing. It's not super spiritual. So let's be careful that we don't make Christian meditation something so spiritual that we're going, boy, I can never do that because we meditate regularly. But the question is, what are you meditating on? We do it all the time. The critical issue for us all is what are we choosing to mull over and process and think about? What are we choosing to let sink into the core of our being? You know, in Eastern meditation, in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind, to empty it. But in biblical meditation, it involves filling the mind with the Word of God. And in this psalm, we're told exactly what this person is meditating on. Verse 2, on his law, he meditates day and night. Which in the psalmist's day would represent the whole of God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just to give you another example of what it means to meditate on God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 4 through 9. A familiar passage of Scripture, I think. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your, not in your head, but where? In your heart. They should be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's all about meditating, absorbing, and understanding, and taking in God's Word on a regular, consistent basis. Write this verse down, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Another way in which to meditate. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, as he writes to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes, he says, Finally, brothers, listen to this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. It's meditation. Thinking about these things. Allowing the Word of God and the truth of God's Word as you approach it from the premise of, I'm here to experience who God is and what He has for me. To walk in intimacy with Him. We meditate on it. We mull it over and over and over again in our heads, in our minds. And how do we do that? And there's so many different ways in which we can do it. You know, I've got this Bible reading guide in the back of my Bible. And it will take me through the Bible 
in a year. I've read the Bible in a year a number of different times. But I've also learned that just simply reading the Bible to be able to say, man, I did it in a year. I mean, what is that all about? I mean, that's awesome that you did it. The question that I often ask is, so how did you encounter God and what do you remember? And so I use a Bible reading guide, again, wanting to be exposed to the whole counsel of God. And so as I'm going through Scripture, I may be reading something that takes me through the entire Bible, but there may be times that I will spend a week or two weeks just mulling over on one single verse. Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I need to think about that. I need to ponder that. I need to to muse over that over and over again. You take scripture and you allow it to just sort of penetrate to the core of your being. That's meditation. There's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing, nothing complicated about it. You know, or I'll take a verse and I'll write it on a three by five card and, and I'll have it in this in, in my journal and I'll just sort of read through those and I'll continue to mull over those. Wanting to say, God, what do you have for me? How can I meet you in this place? How can I meet you in your word that is inspired? Now the psalmist is not suggesting that the only thing we ever think about is the word twenty four seven. But we should allow the Word of God to continue to penetrate our very being. That it should be a habitual routine of engagement with the Word of God at a level where God's truth is becoming a part of who we are. You know, I know we spent some extra time on this introductory piece, but I think it is so important, so critical for us to understand what it means to delight and meditate on God's Word because if we don't approach the Word correctly, it won't do us any good. And so, now that we know how to approach the Word of God by delighting in the Word and meditating on the Word, what does God's Word say it will do for us in this life? What will God's Word do for us in this life, according to this psalm? First, it will keep us from alignment with the ways of the world. When we are delighting in and meditating on God's word, according to this psalm, it will keep us from alignment with the ways of the world. Notice verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalm begins with this word, blessed. Blessed. Jesus on the mount gave what's called, described as the Beatitudes. Blessed is he. What is this blessed life? What is this blessed life that the psalmist talks about, that Jesus talked about? As one author states, it is an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances for one's happiness. Let me read that again. It is an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. Those who are blessed, the psalmist says, have inner lives that are rightly aligned with the things of God and the truths of God. It has the idea that this person who is blessed has an inner joy and peace even when the world around them is crumbling, is chaotic, is uncertain. They know and are experiencing God's kind of personal soul care and satisfaction. That's the blessed life. It's an element of satisfaction and joy that goes beyond the circumstances that they find themselves in. Notice also in verse 1 that the the company that we choose to keep 
can wipe out blessings in this blessed life. Because remember when I started, as we walked through the psalm, I mean, the psalmist here is talking about two different life paths in which to choose and walk through or walk on. The company we choose to keep can wipe out blessings and this blessed life and lead us to a bad place in life where we can miss out on God's approval. If we want to experience a blessed life where we're experiencing God's approval upon us, then we need to start with a degree of separation from the ways of the world. I'm not talking about isolation here, but I'm talking about appropriate separation from the things of the world, where the world is not inappropriately influencing us. You know, if we want to have a blessed life, then there are three things that we must not do. And the psalmist touches on these. A way we should not walk, a place we should not be, and a seat we should not sit in. Notice, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The word wicked refers to those who are, who are loose and unstable in their thinking and in their way of life. It can, be, it can mean loose with morals and unstable in life choices. and also means somebody who is unattached from God. The wicked are those who encourage and and promote principles that are morally unstable. It's another way in which to look at it. You know, I'm afraid that many of us, as we're walking through life, often don't think about whether the advice that we're receiving from others is anchored to God and to His Word or not. Are we more interested in the advice of Dr. Phil, Oprah, Tony Robbins, whoever that might be out there? Now, they may have some truth that has some biblical foundation to it. But the reality is, are we spending more time listening to folks like that than we are spending time with the God of the universe who truly has the truth, who knows how life really works? Whose counsel are you choosing to walk in? When Becky and I had our first child, son Joel, I mean, we started reading all of these you know, how to parent books. And I mean, I mean, we had stacks and stacks of those. And I'm not diminishing or, or, or saying that there isn't value in some of that stuff. But when it came to child rearing and instilling the values in, in our kids' lives as they continue to grow, I mean, all of these books, they, they had some great insights. But the bottom line is, we need to be going to God's Word for those insights as to how to raise children. As to the values that we needed to instill. And making our kids understand that they could encounter the God of the universe in this thing. And that we as parents got our advice and our insight from this and not from all of this. Whose counsel are you walking in? Is it God's word or is it just somebody else's word that sounds good and makes sense and gets you pumped up and motivated for a season? Whose counsel are you walking in? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And I'm not suggesting that that Tony Robbins or Dr. Phil or Oprah are wicked, but I'm simply, I think you understand what I'm saying here. Whose wisdom are you following? Whose counsel are you being driven by? Next we're told that we should not stand, he says, in the way of sinners. Standing has this idea of standing with and identifying. Not against but it's embracing or being okay with the lifestyle of, of the sinners. 
The word way refers to a direction that is taken by a lot of people as they move from wrong thinking to wrong principles to wrong morals, which then leads to wrong practices. That's the description here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. And then, we're told, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The word sit means to dwell, to remain, to abide. It refers to a settled state or condition of life. It's also used, the word sit is also used as as an assembly of people. You know, we all have a need to belong. And if we don't plug in with believers, we'll find ourselves plugging in with the scoffers. And who are the scoffers? The scoffers are those who mock and ridicule and blame God. Those who mock and ridicule and blame the church. The scoffers are those who, who mock and ridicule and blame Christians for all the world's problems, and including theirs, and they never take personal responsibility. Never take personal responsibility. And we all know how easy that kind of attitude comes to our own heart. If anything goes wrong, it's always somebody else's fault. Those are the scoffers. Did you notice this downward life progression that the psalmist is referring to? A person begins by walking down the road, listening to popular advice and worldly wisdom. Then he stops to hang out with sinners and begins to do the same things that they do. And finally, because he likes it so much, he sits down and joins them in their mockery of others and of God. You know, this person walks around and then stands around and finally sits down right in the middle. It begins as something casual and it moves to compromise and ends in personal catastrophe. We've all been there. We've all done that. My question to you this morning is, where are you walking? Who are you walking with? Where are you standing? Who are you identifying with? Where are you sitting? If you're not in the right spot, you need to make some adjustments and you need to do it now. If you are delighting and meditating on God's Word, it will keep you from alignment with the ways of the world. Because as we open this Word and we encounter God and we understand how much He loves us and the kind of things He has planned for us, we will walk in His ways and not the ways of the world. Well, the second thing that this psalm tells us as we delight in and meditate on God's Word is that it will keep us stable and growing in our faith. Notice verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What are those streams of water the psalmist is talking about? Well, throughout the Bible, streams of water represent God's presence. Filling us, transforming us. And so the psalmist is talking about a stable life where we are regularly encountering and experiencing God through His Word. And as we are doing that, we will be fruitful and we will be flourishing in our walk in relationship with Him. You see, God wants us to be fruitful, but understand, realize, fruit takes time to develop. There's also a season for fruit, which means we need to be patient with ourselves, patient with others, patient with God, 
Realize that the most important part of your life is what others can't see as you think about this picture that the psalmist is drawing for us. If you want to have good fruit producing good things through your life, then you need to have good, deep, healthy roots. And those you can't see. Nobody can see the roots. Only God can. And only you, knew, and only you know how deep those roots go. Notice also this tree, because it has good deep roots, can withstand bad conditions. It can endure times of drought, hardship, difficulty, intense storms. And in a similar way, if our souls are rooted deep into God and into His Word, we will still go through tough times, but we won't wither, as the psalmist says. About a year before my dad was called home to be with the Lord, he was, str- he was struggling with, um, with chronic leukemia. And what was so incredible about my dad and his faith was the fact in the midst of all of the junk he was going through with chemotherapy, with dialysis, I remember one of the last times I saw my dad sit in the hospital attached to the dialysis machine and he just kept saying over and over, Kent, over, and over again, he said, Kent, I am so blessed. God is so good. And I'm standing there and I'm going, "Ah, I don't get it. But his faith was so deeply rooted in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God that through whatever storm he was walking through, and this is a horrific storm for him, he wasn't withering. He was stable and he was strong in his faith and his walk his relationship with God because the roots of his soul were down deep into God and his word. That's what the psalmist is talking about when he's talking about this this tree and how stable it's going to be. That's what God wants for us. When we have learned to delight in and meditate on God's word and it becomes a part of who we are, we can then draw upon the grace and the glory and the strength of God because the root of our souls run deep into the rich, moist soil of God and his word and we can walk through those storms. Well, the third thing the psalmist tells us as we delight and meditate on God's word is that it will keep us from suffering the consequences of the wicked. Bottom line. When we are delighting in and meditating on God's word, it will keep us from suffering the consequences of the wicked. Notice verses 4, 5, and 6. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are three things said of the wicked here, quickly. First, their life is like chaff. We already made reference to that. In the ancient world, part of... The wheat harvesting process involved winnowing. They would often go up onto a hill, stomp on the wheat, and then throw it up into the air, and the kernels, the seed, the kernels would fall to the ground, while the chaff would just simply blow away. It would just blow away because it's worthless. Because it's worthless. God is saying those who don't walk according to God's way and God's will and God's purpose are like chaff, just worthless of no value, driven here and there, unstable in all their ways, as James says. The second thing that the psalmist says here is the wicked will not stand in the judgment. 
That means the daily judgments of God, the evaluation God makes constantly of our lives. This person has no standing at all. His life is regarded as worthless. Everything he does is so much wasted labor and matters nothing for eternity. And then the third thing the psalmist says is that the sinners will not be together with the righteous. There's only one of two paths. There's only one of two locations. The psalmist is saying that they will not be together with the righteous in the final judgment. When all the redeemed are gathered together and we are finally home, this person will be absent. The one who has decided to walk their own way, who is unstable in all their ways. There's so much in this psalm. But what is so critically important here, friends, is to understand the absolute necessity of how you should approach God's Word by delighting in it and meditating on it. If you were marooned on a desert island, it might sound like a good thing depending on what's going on in life, but if you were marooned on a desert island and could have only a single book with you, what one book would you choose? That question was asked of G.K. Chesterton, a man of deep faith and a great Christian writer of the first half of the 20, 20th century. And you might have expected his response to be, what, the Bible? But it wasn't. His response was, if I were on a desert island, marooned on a desert island, the one book that I would want, he immediately said, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> I mean, think about it, right? When you stop to think about it, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because if we were trapped on a desert island, we'd want a book that would help us to get home safely, right? God's Word, God's Word can transform us as we delight in and meditate on it, and as we do that, we will get to know God's heart. And in knowing God's heart, we will know how to live our lives in such a way that we can look forward to getting off of this world and being able to stand before our Heavenly Father to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to my heaven. We are harvest, what? Bible Chapel. Harvest Bible Chapel. What I love about Harvest Bible Chapel and what we do here is that we are all about the Word. Not just one or two verses of the Word, but we are a church that is about the Word. Pastor Tim walks through entire books, deals with hard topics and subjects. It is the whole counsel of God. We are Harvest Bible Chapel. May we also be people of the Word. Would you pray with me?